0: We're good students. You see, I was a good student, okay? What normally makes us, what normally makes us say we were good students is if we got good grades on the report card, right? I got good grades on my report card. My wife got like every good grade possible. She was like 4.0, perfection all the time. And she still is, but you're still perfect, baby. That's all I'm saying. You're still perfect. So if you got good grades, you got like all A's, all B's and stuff like that, that usually said you were a good student. Really what that says, because of the way our educational system is made up, is that you're a good test taker. Not everybody is a good test taker. Not everyone is. Some people have like really bad anxiety when a test is put in front of them. And it doesn't matter how hard they study. It doesn't matter what their study habits are. They're going to struggle on the test. I didn't happen to be that way. I love tests. I love trivia. I can't get enough of Jeopardy. I don't care if Alex is there or not. I love people asking me like general knowledge questions. I love those things. But sometimes, you know, that doesn't all. just because you got good grades, doesn't mean that you were always a great student. And sometimes, too, you've had these teachers, and everybody's had them before, where they seem like they try to make the test as hard as possible, and they rig the test to try to make you fail. Did anybody else have teachers or professors like that? Yeah, I couldn't stand those people. There's a special judgment coming for those kind of teachers. That's all I'm saying. And if you're an educator and you're watching right now, just, you've been warned. It's happening, right? It's going to come, right? Kind of makes me think of the story about this student. He was, um, he was studying for one of those classes in college over at UK. You know one of those classes you have to take to get your liberal arts degree, but you're never gonna use it in life, kinda of like algebra. Can I get a witness? You know my theory on that, right? When you start mixing letters and numbers, it's not math, it's witchcraft. When you start mixing those two things, okay, right? But he had to take this class called ornithology. And we all know what ornithology is, right? The study of birds, man. You got- Study, got to study the birds. Well, this guy had struggled all semester long in ornithology class, and so when it came down for the semester final, he had he knew he had to get a good grade. So this guy studied like a beast. His whole like two week experience getting ready for his final was he lived his life in Birdland. Everything he did was about birds. He studied the mating calls. He studied he studied the mating habits. He studied the colors. He studied the habitats of the birds. He watched Big Bird on Sesame Street. He did everything he could to know everything he could about birds. When it came time for the exam, when the exam day comes, he goes in, he sits down on the front row, and he is ready to rock this final out, man. He is ready to go. Professor walks in, says nothing, pulls out uh, his old projector and sits it on the table, turns off the lights and puts a slide of 30 bird legs up on the slide. And he said, this is your entire semester final. I want you to match the legs with the appropriate bird. Guy beats his fist on the desk in front. Everybody is like just freaking out. They're scared to death because none of them studied for this. And so finally this guy stands up and he says, that is completely unfair. Not one class, not one section in our book had anything to do with bird legs. You never did a lecture. Now our entire final is about bird legs. The professor basically just says, son, he says, look, If you know everything you need to know about birds, the legs should not be a problem. Legs are important parts of the birds, so you should be ready to go with this. He said, you know that everybody in this room, outside of a chicken leg, we don't know anything about bird legs. The professor says, well, you know what? This is my class. It's my kingdom. This is the final. Deal with it. Guy gets up, grabs his bag, gets ready to go. Professor says, what do you do? And he says, that's it, man. This is an unfair test. I'm just withdrawing from the class. I want to I withdraw. He says, you can't do that. You've sat here the entire semester. This is a semester final. If you withdraw now, you're taking an F for the semester. He said, that's fine. I can't pass your ridiculous unfair test anyway. And he begins to walk out. And the professor finally says, hey, son, that's fine. Just let me know your name so I can mark the class roster. The guy stops for a second, turns around, pulls up both of his pant legs and says, I don't know, doc, you tell me. walks out. We've all had tests like that where they just seem like they were destined for you to fail. And in a lot of ways, that's been kind of the view of the Ten Commandments. As we come to the end of the Ten Commandments today, here's what I hope we remember, is that the Ten Commandments serve a lot of purposes in our lives. The Ten Commandments still serve a lot of purposes within our modern day society today, but one of the primary purposes for the Ten Commandments is to serve as a test that reveals to us the the true state of our hearts. In a lot of ways, you can say that the, the Ten Commandments serve like this mirror or this window that we look into that shows us just how warped we are. Because I don't know if you're like me, we're really good at making ourselves look good, right? Like I tried on two or three different outfits this morning before I came to church because I wanted to look good up on the stage. How would I do? Right? I put it together pretty well, right? You know, some of you are like, yeah, I don't know, I prefer if you wore a tie. You know, you know I don't know, something like that. But here's the thing. We always want to try to make ourselves look good. The Ten Commandments remind us no matter how good we try to make ourselves look, spiritually speaking, on the inside, we're rotten. So, well, thanks, man. I love coming to church and getting beaten up and told that I'm a sinner. But here's the beautiful part of the Ten Commandments that we've looked at through this entire series is while we come to realize our sin, our propensity to fail, we also know that there is a great God in heaven who loved us too much to let us stay that way. And he sent Jesus Christ to redeem us of that. If the Ten Commandments is a test, it is one of those tests that's just designed for us to fail. And no matter how much you prepare for it, no matter how much you try to to learn it, to internalize it, to make sure you follow it, to follow all of that tooth and nail, you're still going to fail when it comes down to the final analysis because none of us are perfect. All of us fall short, the Bible says, of the glory of God. And because we fall short of that, death is what we earn. We don't earn an F, but we earn death. So the question is, have you experienced that kind of feeling this past week? If you haven't seen it yet, today's the day that you really see it. Maybe you say, you know what? I don't see myself as an idolater. I don't see myself as somebody who takes the Lord's name in vain. I haven't murdered anybody. I haven't cheated. I have have followed all of these good. This one is going to get every single one of us. Look at Exodus chapter 20, verse number 17, and it says this. Do not covet your neighbor's house. Now, That doesn't mean look at his house and covet it. What it means is do not cover his household. In the original language, what it meant was do not covet his life. Do not covet any aspect of his life. Do not covet your neighbor's wife, his male or his female servant, or his friends, or his ox, or his donkey. I'm covered there. I've never coveted somebody's donkey or their ox or anything that belongs to your neighbor. Do not covet. Father, I pray that you would speak to us this morning. Holy Spirit, be the preacher today. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. So, all right, here we are at the last question on the test today. This is our final exam, really. We're coming down to the end of the test. Right? And usually the professor saves the hardest question for last, right? It's usually where the essay question lives. You know, this like basically a catch-all for everything else. This is what the tenth commandment is for us. The tenth commandment, thou shalt not covet or do not covet, is the catch-all for everything else that we've looked at. So far, we've looked at a lot of different codes. We've looked at, first of all, the spiritual codes. You know, the codes that basically talked about our relationship between us and God. When he said, Don't worship anybody but me, he said, Don't make any graven images or idols of me. Don't take my name in vain. Remember to worship me and rest in me. Remember the Sabbath. And then he hits us with the moral codes, you know, the ones that relate to our relationship with other people. And he said, honor and obey your parents. That was a hard one. Don't murder anyone. A little less hard, but you know, it may fit for a lot of people. Don't commit adultery. Don't steal. Don't lie or gossip about anyone. Every one of these, once we got down to the nitty-gritty, And once we saw what God was really saying through these commandments, every one of these ended up being like a spiritual gut punch to each one of us. Even the murder one, even though we may not have ever taken our hands and took the life of somebody else, our thoughts, our intents, our words about people, the way we act, the way we ignore the plight of other people is murderous as well. Every one of these was like a gut punch, reminding us before you go talking about how much of a holy roller you are, remember we are all sinners. And we all struggle with this, even if we say, hey, I'm a child of God. I'm a member of Graceway Church. I'm a deacon. I'm a Sunday school teacher. I'm I'm on the worship team. I do all of these things. It doesn't matter. Every one of us have violated every one of these commandments. We all stand condemned before these. And then, if that wasn't enough to convince us, we get commandment number 10. Don't covet. The difference in commandment number 10 from all of the other ones is it's easy to look at all the other commandments and say, you know what, and look at our hands and say, my hands haven't committed a lot of these, so I'm clear. But what, the, what coveting does is it takes a look at the heart. It's not concerned with our hands, because I can't covet with my hands. I covet with my heart. I covet with my heart. It's what my heart wants. And a lot of times I can control my hands, but the heart is so much harder to control isn't it or maybe it's just me but the heart is so much harder to control the bible even tells us the heart is deceitful it's desperately wicked out of it flows all kinds of evil and sin and all of those things this is what it kind of comes down to is god has left us with this open ended essay question at the end of the final and he's basically saying you're not going to pass you're not going to pass Every one of us are guilty of this in some way, shape, or form. Charles Haddon Spurgeon, the prince of preachers, no sermon is complete, especially in the Baptist faith, without a quote from Spurgeon, all right? Here's what the Spurge said. He said, when people break the other commandments, they often break this one first. So it kind of brings us full circle, If we're guilty of breaking some of the other commandments, we can always go to coveting and realize that that's the root. That was the fuel. That was the heart condition that sparked the movement of my hands. Coveting is what brings us full circle. And it brings us back to the first one. It's been said before that commandment number one, do not have idols or do not worship anyone but me. And commandment number 10, do not covet in your heart, are the bookends of the 10 commandments that kind of holds them all together on the bookshelf. So today what I want to do is I want to dig down a little bit deeper into commandment number 10 and see what coveting actually looks like. Then I want to look at two case studies from the Old Testament and see exactly what we can draw, the lessons that we can learn from some of the coveting mistakes of people in Scripture of us. And then I also want to see how do we overcome that coveting spirit. So first of all, what is coveting? What does it mean to covet? Covet is not a word that we use a lot today in our society. You know, I don't know if I've ever used the word coveting if it's not in a preaching scenario or in a thing of of quoting the Ten Commandments. We may not use the word a lot, but we definitely use the idea. We use it like crazy. First, one of the best ways to figure out what something is is by learning what it is not. A lot of people have wrong ideas about what coveting is. A lot of people have said that coveting is defined by liking or wanting nicer things. There's nothing wrong with having good taste. All right, so let us let us off the hook of it. There's nothing wrong with having good taste. There's nothing wrong with looking at something and saying, that's nice. It wouldn't, be, it wouldn't be a bad thing to have that. Some people say that coveting is a desire to have anything. But there's nothing wrong with that. God's not talking about somebody who wants something so they're willing to work for it or they're willing to follow God's processes to gain it and, or save up and responsibly so that they can afford it because you're willing to acquire what you want by honest means. Coveting is not the desire to have something. Coveting is not noticing something saying, hey, it'd be nice to have that. But if coveting leads us to start cutting corners in order to have that or become jealous of somebody because they have it and you don't, this is when we get into the place where coveting is defined. See, coveting is most likely defined or best defined as a sinful craving that makes you discontent without it. And it will also make you resentful of others when they have it and you don't. None of us have ever been there before, right? None of us have ever had this sinful craving of something. Maybe something that we thought was good for us, but really it wasn't. And here, you want to know a good indicator of whether something is good for us or not? If you say, hey God, I'd like to have this. And he says, hold your horses, buddy, that's not good for you. It's probably not good for you. But what do we often do? Our covetous hearts make us mad at God. Well, why can't I have it? And then we, and you've, let, you've let this guy over here have it. Why can't I have it like he does? And then we get mad at that person because he has it. And, you know, we know how this all works, right? Or maybe you're just getting a, a good look into, to me and you're like, man, my pastor is such a nasty sinner, right? Coveting is defined by a sinful craving that makes us discontent without it and resentful of others who do have it. So you look at a guy and you say, hey man, nice car. You say, man, I love your house. Your family is so awesome. Your family is beautiful. And so you're like, and then you walk away, you're like, man, I wish I could have a little bit of that. That guy has just got it all together. And so what you do is you find yourself thinking about it more than you should. You're checking in on their Facebook or on their Instagram or on their TikTok a little bit more than you should. You're thinking about his wife or her husband in ways that you shouldn't or you're wishing that your kids would be more like theirs, as successful as theirs or as smart as theirs or something like that. All of a sudden, you're trapped in that discontented, coveting cycle where you continually think, I don't have, this person does. And eventually, we come to the place of we begin to think about and fantasize about how could I have what he has? If I could only have the job that she has, I'd be happy. If I could only have the wife that he has that looked like she does or treated, me like she, or treated me like she treats him, then I'd have a good marriage. And here's the thing. The perfectly filtered, the perfectly edited social media posts that we see all over the place of people's lives, that it took like a thousand shots to get the perfect one, it only adds to that cycle. It only adds to that discontentment. So the thing is that coveting is all around us. Coveting is a nonstop opportunity, isn't it? And it's not just in our world. It's always been that way. Coveting is a nonstop opportunity around us. And we've probably spent so much of our lives coveting that we don't even realize when we're doing it anymore. It's become such a basic part of our lives that it's okay. And it's become most acceptable sin in our Western culture, modern first world problems kind of culture. It's the most acceptable sin that we can find in our society. See, most of us, we have more than we need. We definitely have more than the majority of the rest of the world. That are not living in what we call the first world. We definitely have more than what even those people need or want. We have expendable income. We have free time. A lot of us have luxuries that a good portion of the world doesn't have. If you own a car, you are among the 20% wealthiest people in the world. I've owned a car since I was 16 years old. 20, top 20% wealthiest people in the world. We're surrounded by fuel for coveting on every side. And this is what makes the 10th commandment so relevant for our culture today. And it also makes it one of the most difficult ones to kind of get control of because it's like God saved the hardest commandment for last. It's like he saved the last one. He's like, man, stop and think really, really hard about this one. And that's the thing about coveting is it's all about the heart. At the very end of it, Lest we forget, unless we miss the point of all the other commandments, God is very clear and blatant and he says, look, I'm speaking to your heart, not to your hands. I'm not just giving you a list to follow and be good little boys and girls. I'm giving you a list to follow that will give you a diagnosis of your heart that shows a glaring need for me and me only. That's the whole point of the Ten Commandments that we've been looking looking at. See, it's easy to look at the other commandments and say, I haven't murdered, I haven't cheated, I don't lie near as much as anybody else, but this one's different. He says, you can keep your hands in your pocket because what I'm interested in is in the heart within your chest. See, the Apostle Paul, one of probably the people would argue in, Christian, in, in, in the Christian faith, probably one of the greatest Christians, one of the most faithful Christians that has ever lived, said that the 10th commandment is the one that got him. In Romans chapter 7, he said that he had almost deceived himself into thinking that he followed all of the commandments perfectly until he got to coveting. He said coveting was the one that did him in. He said he thought that he kept all of the other ones better than anybody else, which by the way is pride because I'm looking at everybody else and you know, we, we, that's a whole other message, right? But he said this one was different. This one went down to his heart. And he could follow all the rules, which he did because he was like one of the most, one of the most zealous Pharisees of all time. He could follow the rules. But when he got to coveting, all bets were off because it got to his heart rather than to his hands. It showed him that the law of God is ultimately not about what we do, but it's about what we desire. I can fake it a lot with what I do. I can't fake my desires. None of us can. I can fake a lot of what I do, but I cannot fake my desires. Some of you, that's probably the best thing that you're going to hear today. That's going to be the one that hits you the most. Because you spent your entire life trying to fake it. And you fooled everybody, you've even fooled yourself. But here's God saying, you can't fake your desires. You can't change your heart. Only I can do that. The covenant proves that we can't just fix ourselves by just following the commandments. This is the heart of legalism. This is what a lot of people think that we do as Christians, that we just follow all these rules and it makes us righteous, that nothing could be further from gospel truth. The truth of the gospel is none of us can follow these rules. Jesus Christ is our redemption. He is the one who covers our sin. He's the one who redeems us brings us from spiritual death to spiritual life. We can't fix it. See, I can't fix my spiritual problems by doing all the right things any more than a thermometer can fix me. All it can do is tell me that I'm sick. I can't just throw that thermometer in my mouth and say, oh man, I have a fever, but as long as I keep this thermometer in my mouth, I'm gonna get better. It's not gonna do that. The Ten Commandments is a diagnostic tool, a thermometer that reveals to us, I'm sick. And coveting is the one that really gets to us. Coveting is the one that really gets us, gets us hard. Just keeping all the commandments is not going to fix my broken heart. It was never meant to. It was meant to point me to the only one who could fix my heart. And that is Jesus. So we've been stating in each message that the toxic nature of our hearts and the commandment reveals the toxic nature of our hearts. And then we've looked at how Jesus took it to the heart level See, coveting is our proof of idolatry. Our heart wants what our heart wants. We hear that a lot in our society today. But what our heart wants is desperately not good. That's why when I said we can control our hands, but we can't control any times our hearts, we can't control our desires, that hits us hard because we know that's true. No matter how much we try to change it, no matter how much we try to, to say that it's not true, we know that it's true. I can't control my desires. And the answer is not just say, well, since I can't control my desires. I should just give in to them because giving in to those sinful desires is still sin and it's still going to lead to death. The only answer is to give myself to Jesus. See, covening is the proof of our idolatry. So the command of covening brings us back to the very first one. Covetousness, J.D. Greer says, is the first commandment basically restated in psychological terms is really what it is. It's the first commandment, don't have any idols, don't, don't love anyone but me. It's, the, it's that restated in psychological terms. Here's what Paul says in his epistles about covetousness. In Ephesians chapter 5, he says, For this you know that no whoremonger, no unclean person, no covetous man who is an idolater has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. No covetous, no covetous person has any inheritance in the kingdom of God. Colossians 3, Mortify your members which are upon the earth, fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence, that's a very fancy word, and covetousness which is idolatry. Paul says that covetousness is idolatry. What we want in our hearts when it's not God, it makes it an idol. And an idol is whatever our heart loves most passionately, whatever it depends on the most desperately, and whatever it obeys the most loyally. And all of us have different heart idols. Not, the same thing doesn't make all of us tick. There's different things, but our idols are whatever our heart loves most passionately, whatever our heart depends on most desperately, and whatever I am willing to be obey, to obey most loyally. So whatever you love, whatever you crave the most, you're going to covet when you don't have it. Life will only seem fulfilling when that is within your grasp. But everything that we usually look at to be those heart fulfilling things are always elusive. The only fulfilling thing that is never going to be elusive is Jesus Christ because He said, I'm the same yesterday, today, and forever. He says, I will never leave you and I will not forsake you. Jesus is not elusive. All of the other little g gods are. They all want to run away, they all want to fly away. Jesus is the one who says, I'm here and I'm staying. He's the one that fulfills our hearts completely. The command against idolatry is what, com- what it bookends the Ten Commandments. And here's basically a good way of looking at this. He's saying, I want your heart, so make sure that your heart wants me. So let's look at some people within Scripture this morning that <laughs> had a chance to get this right, but they blew it. Aren't you glad that the Bible is just not, while it is true cover to cover, it gives us some examples of some really messed up people. I mean, some really, really messed up people, right? I'm going to give you a really, really messed up story this morning. But the first case study, just really, really briefly, is actually Adam and Eve. Because if you go all the way back, the very first sin was fueled by coveting, right? God puts them in the garden. He says, here's all these beautiful trees. You can have anything you want, anything your heart desires, except for there's this one tree over here. It's not good for you. Don't touch it. So immediately, what did they think? ooh, that's a pretty tree. Wonder why he doesn't want us to touch it. Well, he said it wasn't good for us. And so all of a sudden, this snake comes around one day and Adam and Eve are out there. And the snake starts talking to Eve and says, hey, this is a good tree. And she's like, no, God says it's not good for us. And he says, oh, he's lying. And we know what happens. The serpent begins to tempt them based off of what they'd already been thinking in their covetous minds. Why does God say it's not good for me? They began to think, God can't be trusted. What the serpent is telling me is right. He is withholding something from me that he knows will make me better. When the only thing that's going to make us right or make us better is following what God says. If you're being tempted or coming to the thought of, if I step outside of what God has said he wants and because that's gonna make me better, you've already gone wrong. We've already done that. And that's what Adam and Eve did. They got upset with God. They began to think in their covetous hearts, God is withholding something from me that is obviously going to make me better. God doesn't have good intentions in withholding this from me. So therefore, I'm just going to head and take it for myself. And last week we talked about what happened. Immediately when they did that, they were exposed and they couldn't they couldn't believe the lies anymore. They couldn't even tell the lies anymore and God exposed them. But the first sin was based upon covetousness. Their coveting made them skeptical of God's intentions. And I think that's the problem with many people today. Even within the church of Jesus Christ, we're sitting here, we love him. We're raising our hands saying, I worship you, I love you, I trust you. But when when the rubber meets the road, we doubt his intentions in our lives. When we begin to doubt God's intentions, we are setting ourselves up for covetousness. We're setting ourselves up for it. So their coveting made them vulnerable to Satan's deception. They ultimately opted for the lie of a serpent over the truth of their creator. this is what covetous will lead us to. And in that process, they brought sin and death on all of us, every single one of us. But there's another story I want to look at this morning that is really, man, it's icky. So get ready for it. Even in Kentucky, it's icky. It's the story of Amnon and Tamar. How many of you ever heard of that, those two names before? A few of you? Okay, if you haven't before, the Bible's got some pretty twisted stuff in it. We've all heard this story about Adam and Eve, but let's look at this one. So go to 2 Samuel, if you would. 2 Samuel in your Bible, 2 Samuel chapter 13. Here's the thing this story is sick and it's twisted. And as twisted as it is, the sad thing is we see a lot of ourselves in this story. So as you're turning there, let me kind of set the story up for you a little bit. Since Amnon was King David's oldest son, all right, he was his oldest son born to his first wife. And, uh, and, and everything was looking good for Amnon. He was in line to be the next king of Israel. I mean, he was the chosen one. He was, I mean, he was it. He was awesome. If you know your Old Testament history, you never hear about a King Amnon in Israel though, right? We never hear of King Amnon. Here's why. We're going to look at why we don't. It all starts when Amnon develops a huge crush. Now, nothing wrong with developing a huge crush. A good king needs a good queen. The problem is... He wanted his queen to be his sister. All right, now, I know we're in Kentucky, and um, you know that sort of thing is you know only lightly frowned upon. But it should really, really, really be frowned upon. All right, you shouldn't you shouldn't like have the hots for your sister. All right, even for your half sister, which is what Tamar was. The the thing is, is that back then it wasn't really frowned upon. It wasn't looked at to be that bad because David had multiple wives. Like he had, he had a whole lot of wives. So Tamar was actually a sister f- from another wife. So he's the half-sister with Tamar. So here's the bad thing. It really wasn't considered to be all that abnormal in those days. But Amnon really, really likes her. And the thing is that Tamar, Tamar doesn't. She's not returning the affections. So let's pick up in First Samuel chapter. 13, or 2 Samuel chapter 13, verse number one. It says, some time passed and David's son Absalom had a beautiful sister named Tamar and David's son Amnon was infatuated with her or he was overcome with her. Amnon was frustrated to the point of making himself sick over his sister Tamar. Anybody ever just been sick in love? I mean, sick in love. Like If if I don't have this person in my life, I'm not, life is not worth living. This is where he was. He was literally making himself sick over his infatuation with Tamar. He says, I'm making myself sick because she was a virgin and it seemed impossible that he could do anything to her. So here he is. He's sick because he wants Tamar so much and he knows that he probably shouldn't. And he also has realized that he can't, which leads me to believe that he's probably tried at times and he's been shot down. Like he's tried and tried and failed and failed. And at this point now, he's sick and tired of of trying. Here's the first lesson that we have to learn about covetousness from Amnon. You're like, I don't want to be anything like Amnon. Here's how we are. Coveting will always make us sick with desire. Coveting will always lead to a sick, a sickening desire. What we covet eventually controls us, eventually brings us to the point of, if I don't have this, I don't want anything else. We hear this happen so many times today. Much of our love songs that we hear on the radio and, and stuff like that, and the idea of love today is that way. If I can't have this person, life is not worth living. The only thing that makes my life worthwhile is having that person that I desire. That's kind of some of the, the, the lie that is, that is kind of fed to us. So Amnon wants Tamar so much that he's literally sick over, and you may be getting sick thinking about this, but have you ever felt that way about something? Have you ever wanted something so bad that it made you sick? And I don't necessarily, maybe it's something you already have that you worry yourself sick over possibly losing. That's coveting as well. It's coveting in reverse. You're worried sick that you might never get it or you're sick over the fact that somebody else has it and you don't. Every time you see that person, the object of your jealousy and of your envy, you just get this pit in the bottom of your stomach. You're like, man, why can't I have what they have? We're reminded of they have it and we don't. See, the New Testament used this word epithumia. That's a fun word to say. Go ahead and try it, epithumia. All right, epithumia. I don't know why I said it like a New Jersey um, uh, gangster or something, epithumia. That sounds weird, doesn't it? This is a word that had a wide application. Epithemia was used to translate into lust, to desire, to greed, obsession, sinful craving, all of these things. The New Testament writers of the epistles basically used epithemia to cover every sinful desire that was wrong in the Christian life. Epithemia was kind of like that junk drawer that gathered all forms of our covetousness. And what we normally do, we epithemia a lot today in our lives, but we sanitize it. We call it goals. We call it bucket list. We call it dreams. We call it needs. We call it our destiny. We call epithemia everything but what it is, covetousness. But what it's usually rooted in is that. It's the sinful craving of the flesh, that if we got it, what we would do with it would never be righteous. Amnon has got some serious epithemia going on. He's got epithymia titus. All right, that's a word that I just made. It's not a real condition. And it's got to the point where it's made him sick. So here's the question that we apply to our lives today in this. Now that we see how much we are like Amnon, we get sick over the things that we covet, what is our Tamar? What is your Tamar in your life? Maybe it's not your sister. Hopefully it's not your sister, guys. But we all have a Tamar. Maybe our Tamar is money. We all know that we'd like to make more, and there's nothing wrong with working harder to get it. There's nothing wrong with trying to better ourselves, to better our family, to have more money. But when that becomes the thing that drives us, and that becomes the thing that we hinge our happiness and fulfillment in life on, it is a product of our covetousness. So what we do is we find ourselves looking at someone's life and the house they live in, the vacations they take that they can afford, and we become jealous thinking that they're so happy and we're not. And if we could have what they have, we'd be just as happy as they are. And so what do we do? We go into credit card debt. And really, we could really call credit cards covet cards, right? Because normally we go into debt over the things that we want, that we can't have, that we, should, that we feel like we should have, so we go ahead and get them on credit, right? Or another test is how generous or how stingy we are. A lot of times we're not willing to be generous to give because we're too covetous in our hearts. Because to give means that I'm letting go of the things that I want to get. Maybe our tamar is something else. It's someone else's marriage. You're unhappy in your own, so you look at somebody else and think, man, they've got it all together. If we could just love each other the way that they do, if he could look or work where he works, if she could look or do what she does, then I'd be happy. Maybe our Tamar is somebody else's reputation, somebody else's success. Maybe you're constantly keeping track of whether or not you're getting credit for things at the job, or whether you're getting credit for things in church when you serve, or you're irritated at being overlooked for opportunities. You always wonder, what does this guy have that I don't have? Why do I not measure up? All of those are systemic problems within covetousness, and Amnon was consumed with one thing. He wanted Tamar. That's all he wanted. Guy was going to be the next king of Israel, but his life would not be fulfilled until he had Tamar in his bed. And I'm sorry for sounding so graphic, but that's really the way the Bible puts it. Verse 2 says he's frustrated because he just can't figure out how to make it happen. Again, it leads me to believe that he tried so many times. Maybe he tried to flirt with her or something like that at the family reunion and she's like, "Ooh, get away. I don't know what it was, but it leads me to believe that he'd been shot down many, many times. So the next thing he does, he just says, you know what? I'm gonna put all of my eggs in God's basket and I'm just gonna serve him with gladness, right? No, that's not what he does. It's not what we ever do either. He schemes and he manipulates and he tries to find a way. Okay, fine. If it's not going to happen willingly, I'm going to take it forcefully. And so he conspires with his cousin, uh, Jonadab, I think I've got that right, to come up with this plan. He's like, okay, I'm just feeling sick in my stomach. I'm going to actually fake sick. I'm going to lay in bed. I'm going to call in sick to dad. And I'm not going to show up at the office today. And so David comes to visit. Uh, visit Amnon at his house or his apartment there in the palace. And while he's sitting there, he, you know, he's saying, I'll be right in a couple of days. I think I'll be fine. And David's, you know, this is going to be the next king. So he's really worried if he's going to, if he's going to get better. And he says, you know what? I think if I could get somebody just to bring me some nice chicken soup and biscuits, I think I'd feel better in a couple of days. And so as David's leaving, he says, okay, son, I'll, I'll call your mom. Which one is she, by the way? Um, I'll call your mom and I'll get, I'll get her to come bring you over some chicken soup and some biscuits. And he says, you know what? I'll tell you what, the last family reunion, man, Tamar, her chicken soup was like the best. So I think, could I, I mean, I would love to just have the best. Could, 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 do you think that you could get Tamar to come over and make me some, some soup? He says, sure, I'll call Tamar. So we look in verse number seven. David sent word to Tamar at the palace. Please go to your brother Amnon's house and prepare a meal for him. Then Tamar went, because you don't say no to the king, because, you know, I'm going to go cook some soup for my brother. Tamar went to his house while Amnon was lying down. She took dough. She kneaded it. She made cakes in his presence and baked them. And she brought the pan and set it down in front of him. But he refused to eat. And Amnon said, everyone leave me. And everyone left but him and Tamar. So there were other people there, probably secret service and security and other family members and everything. And he says, you know what? Everybody needs to leave but Tamar. Here we begin to see covetousness just leading towards some horrific sin. And Amnon plays it up really good and he says then, he says, I'm too sick to come over to the table. Do you think that you could just maybe bring the food over to me in bed? And in verse number 11, it says, when she brought them to him to eat, he grabbed her and he says, come and sleep with me, my sister. Those are words that should never be uttered in any culture. I don't care what word, come and sleep with me, my sister. Those are just words that shouldn't be uttered. And in verse number 12, she says, don't, my brother. Don't disgrace me for such a thing should never be done in all of Israel. Do not commit this outrage. Where could I go? Where could I ever go with my humiliation? And you, you would be like one of the outrageous fools in Israel. Please speak to the king for he won't keep me from you. This is where we see that if he had just talked to his dad and said, Hey, you know what? I think I want to marry Tamar. He would have probably tried to work it out. But he couldn't even wait for the proper way. Here's what he says after that. But he refused to listen. And because he was stronger than she was, he disgraced her by raping her. So here's the second thing that we see that we're like Amnon. Now that's hard to hear the word rape and then say here's how we're like Amnon, isn't it? But here's how we're like Amnon. Coveting will always drive us to make horribly bad destructive choices. Coveting will always lead us to make horribly bad and destructive choices. Amnon does something that, he is, that is not only unspeakably wrong but incredibly stupid. How in the world does he think he's going to get away with this? The only way he thinks he can get away with this is if he can get Tamar to be quiet and there's no way she's going to be. And she's a princess of Israel. The truth is that he wasn't thinking. He was so controlled by his passions that he acted in a way that only revealed how depraved he really was in his heart. And for some of us, we do the same thing. For some of us, our lives right now are being ruined by the things that we covet because our desire is so strong that it has superseded any other desire that we're willing to let go and do whatever it takes to access it. Some people in the, in, the, in the Bible could not follow Jesus because of the things that they desired so much, like the rich young ruler. When Jesus said, hey, if you want to follow after me, sell all these things. It wasn't because Jesus was trying to set up an extra hoop for him to jump through. It's because Jesus knew that that was going to get in the way of him truly serving Jesus. So he says, just get rid of it. And the guy says, I can't. I got too much of it, man. I need it too much. And he didn't follow Christ. There's so many things in our world that, and in our lives that we have held up to this level that stand in the way, that we'll say, Jesus, I will serve you. I will do whatever you want me to do. Just don't touch this. But for Jesus to truly be the Lord of our lives, he has to have lordship over all of it. And that's why covetousness, covetousness doesn't have a part in our serving God. See, for some of us, our craving of success and recognition is killing us. It's keeping us awake at night. It's making us sick. It's making us hate the people that we're jealous of. And it's eventually going to drive us to do something dumb, if it hasn't already. For some of us, it's going to destroy our marriage because our covetousness of some fantasy that is out there, looking at somebody else, talking too much at the person at work that you you think would just be a better spouse than the one that you currently have. It's going to lead to something stupid. It always does and it always will because sin never is satisfied with our current state. It always wants to drag us deeper. Coveting leads to tragic and stupid choices. Look at verse number 15 because the story gets worse. Amnon, after everything is done, immediately after, Amnon hated his sister Tamar Immediately after he got what he wanted, he hated her with such intensity that the hatred that he hated her with was greater than the love that he had loved her with. And he says, get out of here. Like a piece of used up trash, he got what he wanted and he said, get out. Here's the third thing that we see like we're Amnon. Getting what we covet will always disappoint us and it will usually lead to us hating the thing that we got. And here's the thing that we have to understand that is very important. Note, there is nothing wrong, in, in intrinsically wrong with the things that we desire. There's nothing wrong with money. It's a wonderful tool. There's nothing wrong with, with a house. It's a wonderful thing. There's nothing wrong with a relationship. The idea of a Relationship is a wonderful thing. I have heard people try to justify Amnon's actions so many times by saying that Tamar must have been a flirt or a tease that caused her to do this. There was nothing wrong with Tamar. Tamar just did what she was asked to do. She was innocent and she was raped. She was a victim of his covetousness. Of no holds barred, just doing what he wanted. And when he did, he used her up like a piece of trash and threw her out. And destroyed her life. This is what our covetousness will lead to. What's wrong is the way that we let those things control our thoughts and our desire for it. It becomes so important that it chokes out God as our number one desire. It chokes out everything rational. It chokes out everything humane and makes us say, I will not let anything stand in the way of what I want. Whether it be a person, whether it be a thing, whether it be a corporation, whether it be a country, whatever it may be, what we covet will always be what we chase after if God is not involved. C.S. Lewis says there's two kinds of unhappy people in life. Those who have realized that they're never going to get what they want, so they just give up and they settle into a life of bitterness and cynicism. Or those who have obtained what they seek in life and it has only left them wanting more and disillusioned with the world. And I think most of us live in that middle ground. Most of us probably haven't achieved everything we want to achieve or we haven't gotten everything we want to try. We haven't wanted, so we're still willing to try for it. And we're constantly thinking that what we want is just around the corner. If I just do this, if I just do that. We think this because idols are terrible gods. While Tamar was not a tease, our idols are. Our idols are teases. They give us just a little bit to make us happy, just a little taste of it to make us want more to keep us coming back. Here's the thing about God. Here's the difference between those little G gods and our God. God, when he gives us himself, he gives us his whole self completely the first go around. And he says, if you want more of me, you just come to me. More of him is already given to us. What it depends on is how much of him we will allow in our lives. And that's the fact that leads us to our closing point as as we close out this morning. Coveting, the cure for it is to understand the opposite of it. Just to understand that if I'm not going to covet, I need to be contented in my life. The opposite of coveting is contentment. See, coveting is rooted in this desire for more. It's the reason that we always want more is because we're convinced that we've been slighted in some way. And there are some of you right now, either here or watching, you're honestly, you don't want to say this out loud, but you're mad at God. God didn't work for you the way you thought he should show me in scripture where God is our employee. Please, show me in scripture where God is our servant. It's actually the other way around. But a lot of us are secretly or quietly, and we've been carrying it for so long, maybe we don't even realize it's still there. But underneath of it all, there is a resentment towards God because something didn't pan out the way we thought it should have. And you're defining God's goodness by him coming through in this way. And the problem is, that's gonna lead to a covetous heart. It's going to lead to covetousness of not trusting God. We've been convinced that we've been slighted in some way. Getting what we covet will not always bring contentment. It will a lot of times bring corruption. Amnon thought if he could just have Tamar, he'd be happy. But immediately, immediately he realized that he was wrong. And the shame and the bitterness of that realization caused him to eventually hate his own sister. And she'd done absolutely nothing to deserve it. So what we have to understand is my soul is designed to only be contented by Christ. Your soul is only designed to be contented in Jesus Christ. Our soul was made to find its refuge and its contentment in Jesus, not in reputation, not in money, not in status, not in Tamar. Our souls are designed to only be filled by Jesus. And when we come to find contentment in him, we see that it's much easier in the life to enjoy the life that he's given us. I love what C.S. Lewis said in one of his books. He says, in life, there's the first thing, and that's God. And then there are all the other second things, marriage, family, career, success, money. If we keep the first thing first, we will find that we really enjoy the second things. But if the second things end up coming first, not only do we lose sight of the first thing, but we also begin to hate the second thing. It loses its joy because the joy giver is no longer involved in it. Lewis calls this the paradox of the Christian life. If you crave comfort, if that becomes what you covet, guess what you end up finding? You find the opposite, you find misery. If you crave love, you'll find loneliness. If you crave significance, you'll eventually only feel like you found rejection. When we crave control, we only find chaos. We crave reputation, we only find humiliation. But if you crave Jesus, the man of sorrows, the king of our hearts, if you crave the cornerstone, not only do you get him, but along the way you find happiness, you find love, you find meaning, you find order, you find glory, you find purpose in your life. Along with him, he satisfies you with you with everything else. Jesus gave that same paradox in John chapter 12. He said, the one who loves his life will lose it. And the one who hates his life in this world will then keep it for eternal life. He says, if you love your life, if you covet, if you seek only for it, if you claw and you scratch and you hang on to it for dear life, eventually you're going to lose that life. But if you lose your life now, if you count it as second to chasing after the glory of God and you hang on to Jesus, you will keep that life for eternity and you'll find the real meaning of life now. This literally happened to Amnon. He sought for his life and he lost it. When his brother found out about what happened, when his brother found out about what happened, it wasn't good. Tamar, Told, finally told her, her full brother and her full brother goes over and he kills Amnon. Absalom kills Amnon and then that begins a civil war in the family and Absalom would then be the next in line to the throne but Absalom loses his life too. This is why we don't hear of King Amnon or King Absalom. We hear of King Solomon because there was so much, so much turmoil within the family and it actually doesn't go to Amnon. It didn't even start there. It started with David's covetousness of Bathsheba. It's genetic, it's hereditary, it will pass on. Our sin doesn't just just live in a vacuum with us, it will ripple out to affect other people for a long time. So the only thing that we can do, <sighs> Amnon gave up the throne, he gave up his life, everything because he just couldn't give his heart to God. So what we have to do is we have to stop chasing Tamar, and we have to start chasing God. If Amnon had found his contentment in God, he wouldn't have ended up destroying his sister, he wouldn't have ended up destroying his family, and he wouldn't have lost the throne. Again, it's just like that paradox. You wanted this, you sacrificed all of this to get it. And in return, you got nothing but destruction. So as we close out this morning, I say, man, that's a hard way to close out. I want to close out by pointing to the healing part of this. When you stop chasing Tamar and you start chasing God, you find that things begin to make sense better. God is saying to us through all of these commandments, give me your heart. It's only safe in my hand. And that's the question we close with this morning. Are you willing to trust God with your heart? And I know most of the people that I'm looking at right here in this room and I know most of the people that, that kind of tune in with us virtually as well, many of you have made that professionist. I've given Jesus my life. I trust him with my eternity. But so many times we trust him with our eternity, but we want to keep our heart for ourselves. Here's the challenge today. Give him your heart today, completely, fully, without holding back. Thank you for listening today.